Welcome to another edition of Return to the Word Radio with Bible teacher Mark Fontecchio. Advancing the message of God's amazing grace through the teaching of God's Word. And now with today's message, here is our teacher. It's good to be back with you in the Word of God again. In our last study in the Gospel of John, we saw that the Apostle John introduced the ministry of John the Baptist in verses 6, 7, and 8. Then we read of the true light, the Lord Jesus Christ. This time, we turn again to the ministry of John the Baptist, starting in verse 15 of chapter 1 in the Gospel of John. John bore witness of him and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. And of his fullness we have all received, and grace for grace. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, who is in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him. Now this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. Then they said to him, Who are you that we may give an answer to those who sent us? What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord. As the prophet Isaiah said, Now those who were sent were from the Pharisees. And they asked him, saying, Why then do you baptize if you are not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, saying, I baptize with water, but there stands one among you whom you do not know. It is he who, coming after me, is preferred before me, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to loose. These things were done in Bethabara, beyond the Jordan, where John was baptizing. In December of 2002, a man walked into a Baptist mission hospital in the Middle Eastern country of Yemen. He calmly sat in the waiting room with his pink slip that told security that he was a returning patient. He sat patiently and quietly waited there with the other patients. And then at 8.15, he calmly got up and followed Dr. Martha Myers into Bill Keene's office. Now, before we move forward, I need to stop for a minute and tell you a little bit about this man named Bill Keene. Bill had been the hospital administrator for 28 years. Now, in the United States, if you think of a hospital administrator, you think of a big shot. But Bill was really nothing special. He wasn't a scholar. He wasn't a preacher. He wasn't even a doctor. In fact, 28 years before this, before packing up and moving to Yemen, Bill was a grocery store manager in a small town in Kansas. He was the type of guy that if you did not know him very well, you would think that he was antisocial. He wasn't outgoing. He hated to speak in public. And if there was a group of people around, you could guarantee that Bill would be off to the side by himself. Bill was one of those types of people that you could meet and never remember him. But God called him. Out of the middle of nowhere in Kansas, God called him to work with a Baptist medical mission in Yemen. And he worked there faithfully for 28 years. As a hospital administrator, in a third world country, it meant that his main jobs were fixing things that were broken. Pipes, beds, wires, whatever was needed, Bill did it. 
And wherever he went, he witnessed. He witnessed to the patients. He spent his time carving out small wooden toys to give to the children on the streets so he could witness to them. He even was so bold that he would witness to the Muslim guards at the military checkpoints. Soldiers would look in his car and give the Muslim chant, there is no God but Allah and Muhammad is his prophet. And Bill would look up at them referring to God, smile and say, and Jesus Christ is his son. By all accounts, this man, who was considered a nobody, that came from nowhere, he was a true witness for Jesus Christ. Everything he did in his life pointed people to Jesus as the Son of God. And on that morning in December of 2002, Dr. Myers and the hospital supply manager, Kathy Garrity, were meeting with Bill like they normally did. Well, sometimes it was for prayer, sometimes it was for business, but it was always with an eye toward being a witness for Jesus Christ. Now, this time was different. It was different because an Al-Qaeda operative, Abed Abdul Razik Kamel, got up from his seat in the waiting room and followed Dr. Myers into Bill's office. And when he entered, he pulled a pistol and shot and killed the three of them. Bill Keene, Martha Myers, and Kathy Garrity were 21st century martyrs. For 28 years in the violent, desolate Islamic country of Yemen, Bill was a witness to Jesus Christ. He lived as a witness, and he died as a witness. The English word martyr comes to us from a Greek word, and it means witness. It is actually the same word that the Apostle John used in verse 15 and all throughout this passage for the word witness, that John the Baptist was a witness for Jesus Christ. Even before he was born, John the Baptist was a witness to Christ. Remember when Mary was pregnant with Jesus and Mary went to see Elizabeth when Elizabeth was pregnant with John. The Bible testifies that John leapt in her womb from before he was born. John the Baptist lived his life as a witness to Christ. Take another look at verse 15. John bore witness of him and cried out saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. I think we all recognize that when you study one of the gospel records, you need to study all four to get the complete picture because they all have a little bit of a different focus. But together, you get a more complete representation. Matthew 3, Mark 1, and Luke 3 all record the testimony of John the Baptist before the Lord was baptized. But here in John's gospel, John the Baptist speaks after the Lord's baptism. Notice the careful wording of verse 15. John the Baptist is actually reflecting back and restating what he had spoken about the Christ before the baptism of the Lord. He's looking back because before the Lord was baptized, John the Baptist did not know who the Christ was. Skip down to verse 30 for just a second, still in chapter 1 of John's Gospel. Starting in verse 30, we read, This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who is preferred before me, for he was before me. I did not know him, but that he should be revealed to Israel. Therefore, I came baptizing with water. And John bore witness, saying, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and he remained upon him. I did not know him. But he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, Upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and testified that this is the Son of God. The point is, back in verse 15, the Apostle John was telling us that John the Baptist had looked back at his own ministry and had said, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me is preferred before me, 
for he was before me. Think of the point that John is trying to convey by saying that Christ is preferred before me. This refers to position. This refers to status. It refers to the honor and dignity of the person of Christ. And the idea of John testifying, for he was before me, this referred to time. Jesus was born after John the Baptist, and Jesus began his ministry after John the Baptist. Yet, John stated that Jesus was before him. This referred to the truth of the pre-incarnate existence of the one that John came to testify of. Take another look at verses 16 and 17. And of his fullness we have all received, and grace for grace. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. In these next three verses, verses 16, 17, and 18, it would seem that these are not the spoken words of John the Baptist, but rather that these are the written words of the Apostle John written under the inspiration of God. Now, one reason we would say this is because in verse 16, we see the word we used. We have all received. But when we see John the Baptist giving his testimony throughout this chapter, we see the word I, like we did back in verse 15, where John the Baptist testified, this was he of whom I said. So let's take this first statement in verse 16 from the Apostle John. And of his fullness, we have all received and grace for grace. The word for fullness is the word that is used in the New Testament to speak of the sum total of the attributes and powers of God. When speaking of the fullness of Christ, we're speaking of the eternal nature of the person, the Lord Jesus Christ. So this is something that we have all received from Christ. Pay attention to what this is saying. It seems harder to understand than what it really is. The wording grace for grace literally means grace piled upon grace. This is continuous grace, uninterrupted grace. And this is actually part of the idea that is given to us in verse 17. The old grace was the law given by Moses, but the new was grace and truth, which came through Jesus Christ. Most people do not think of the Old Testament laws as part of God's grace. But if you study the laws of Moses, you can clearly see the grace of God at work as it points to Christ. And the book of Exodus makes it clear that Moses himself saw the grace and mercy of God at work in the lives of the people of Israel. But the Mosaic law was never a means of receiving eternal life. You could not get saved by following the laws of Moses. They, like us, were saved by grace through faith. They looked ahead to the coming Messiah and believed in him for eternal life. The Mosaic law was given to govern the life of Israel. With the Mosaic Law, Yahweh was pointing out the path for the redeemed to live in obedience to him. God's grace, his truth, was present in the days of Moses. But now in Christ, the full measure of God's grace and the full measure of God's truth is finally revealed to man. Now we need to recognize, we need to understand as Christians what the grace of God really is. Grace gets a lot of lip service in the church today, but I don't think it's properly understood. Grace is God's love to sinful mankind. Apart from, or not because of any value in us, not because of our works, our human effort. Another way of saying it would be to say, it is something we do not deserve and it is something we cannot earn. It is the expression of the sovereign God's love for us. By grace through faith we are saved. By grace we live. By grace we grow in the knowledge of Christ. And by grace we will live forever with him. 
His grace continues to stream in the lives of the redeemed. Now, verse 18 is an important verse in our understanding of the revelation of God. Verse 18 records, No one has seen God at any time, the only begotten Son, who is in the bosom of the Father. He has declared him. The Apostle John is making sure that it is clear to us that no man can see God the Father. As I mentioned in our studies of Isaiah, I believe the teaching here that no one has seen God at any time means that the Old Testament appearances of God were Christ. It was Christ that met with Adam and Eve in the garden. It was Christ who confronted Cain. It was the Lord Jesus who met with Abraham before he destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. And now the Son of God was in the flesh, made manifest to human eyes. He could be touched, he could be seen and heard. If it were not for the ministry of the Son, mankind would have a problem because God would be unapproachable. This is backing up the teaching found in Exodus 33, verse 20, where God told Moses, but he said, you cannot see my face for no man shall see me and live. No man shall see the Father and live. Even Moses in Exodus 33 did not have a direct view of God. He was allowed to see part of the glory of God, but not a direct view of God. Christians need to understand to recognize that the Father has been made known to us by the Son, or as John testifies, God the Son has declared God the Father to us. Now, the word that John used for declared, it is the word that we get our English word exegesis from. It means to make known by expounding. Normally, when we think of this word, we're talking of the person who expounds or exegetes the Scripture by bringing out things that were there all the time for the people to see, but things that have been overlooked until they were brought out by the person expounding. This text is telling us that Jesus is the incarnate exegesis of God. He has brought God forth and expounded God to us in what he is, in what he has said, and in what he has done for us. The inner essence of God, his nature, is revealed to us in Christ. In John 14, the Lord said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. And from now on, you know him and have seen him. Listen to what Philip said to the Lord. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is sufficient for us. Then listen to what Jesus said next. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and yet you have not known me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father, so how can you say, show us the Father? This is part of the purpose of the ministry of Christ, that the Father has been made known to us by the Son. And here in John chapter 1, the Apostle John once again uses this phrase of Christ, the only begotten Son. And then John added that the Son is in the bosom of the Father, with the understanding that this represents the love of the Father for the Son and the love of the Son for the Father. This text is teaching us that the revelation of God that Jesus came to give to us, it came from the heart of God. But here comes the priests and the Levites. Take a look at verses 19 and 20. Now, this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. It would seem that starting in verse 19, this is all taking place after the baptism of Jesus and the temptation of Jesus. 
Remember what we saw down in verse 32, that John had already testified beforehand that he had seen the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove upon Jesus. It's interesting that John begins this section by mentioning the Jews. You see, by now, the Jewish rejection of Jesus as the Messiah had pretty much become a settled fact. Now, here's where this becomes important. All of this was well underway by the time that the Apostle John wrote this gospel. So he called God's ancient people Jews. This is the word that he uses about 70 times throughout this gospel. The other gospel records hardly use this word, but most of the time, as John uses this, it refers to the people who are hostile to Jesus and his message. There's a couple of places where the term isn't used this way, but most of the time, the vast majority of the time in the gospel of John, this expression Jew, it refers to those who are hostile, those who are rejecting Christ, and in the end, the ones who sought to kill him. But take it a step further. It actually refers specifically to the Hebrew people living in Judea, especially those around Jerusalem, that were hostile to Christ. In other words, this was the men of the organized and established religious world, apart from faith in Jesus. Refresh your memory. Galilee, up to the north. Judea and Jerusalem, down towards the south. The Apostle John, he was from Galilee. And the word he uses, translated Jew, both here and throughout this gospel record, it literally means Judeans or Judean Jews. And the emphasis is the religious leaders of Judea that rejected the Christ. Down in verse 24, we learn that it was the Pharisees who sent the Jews to John the Baptist. They usually took the lead in the gospels as the enemies of Christ. And one must think that the delegation was probably dispatched by the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin had the responsibility of investigating anyone accused of being a false prophet. Now, there are two main questions that the religious leaders of the day wanted John the Baptist to answer. Who is John, and why did he baptize people? The leaders of the day had questions, because here was John walking around in the desert, wearing animal skins and eating locusts and wild honey. They wanted to know who this guy was. Remember, Matthew 3 teaches us that the people of Jerusalem, Judea, and all the region around the Jordan went out to him to be baptized in the Jordan. John was causing quite a stir. So first we have the question of who John was. This was the burning question of the day. Who was this guy? The ministry of John the Baptist had struck a chord with the people, and the Jewish leaders could not ignore it any longer. Now, keep in mind that by this time, John the Baptist had been ministering for some time. Even Herod had made it his business to have some conversations with this preacher. And by putting the pieces of the puzzle together, it would seem that some in the Sanhedrin had been speculating about whether or not John himself was the Messiah. Verse 21 is going to make it clear to us that the Jewish leaders were expecting someone to come. Give them some credit. They were expecting someone to come. To some degree, they lived in expectation of the fulfillment of the prophetic promises of God's word. And I wish more Christians lived this way. So many have little expectation that Christ will come according to his promise. Remember, the Apostle John, at this point in time, was a disciple of John the Baptist. The Apostle John makes it clear to us this is the testimony of John the Baptist. This is John's own answer of who he was. Notice that they didn't ask John if he was the Christ, but the fact that John testifies, I am not the Christ or I am not the Messiah, it gives us the understanding that this was probably something that they were thinking was a possibility. 
Remember what we saw in our last study, that Luke 3 teaches us at the time men were expecting Christ, that the people reasoned in their hearts about John, whether he was the Christ or not. But John was direct about it. He was not the Christ. It's always the imposters who step onto the scene claiming to be Christ, looking for the praise and worship of men. But not John. He pointed men to the one true Messiah of Israel. In years gone by, one evening, the great conductor Arturo Toscanini conducted Beethoven's Ninth Symphony. It was an absolutely brilliant performance, and at the end, the audience went wild. They clapped, they whistled, they stamped their feet, absolutely caught up in the greatness of the performance. As Toscanini stood there, he bowed and bowed and bowed. Then he acknowledged his orchestra. And when the ovation finally began to settle down, Toscanini turned. He looked intently at his musicians. He was almost out of control as he whispered, Gentlemen, gentlemen. And the orchestra leaned forward to listen. And then with an enunciated whisper, Toscanini said, Gentlemen, I am nothing. That itself was an amazing admission since Toscanini was blessed with an enormous ego. Then he added, Gentlemen, you are nothing. But Beethoven, he is everything. Here's what I appreciate about the ministry of John the Baptist. John was not the Christ. And the repetition used in the wording makes it so clear to us that John was strongly committed in his heart not to accept any honor that did not belong to him. It's not about us. It is about Jesus the Christ because he is everything. Don't think more of yourself than you ought to. That's how Paul put it in Romans 12. Point people to the Savior. Look to glorify Him. Look to make sure that Christ receives all the glory and honor in your life. But if John was not the Christ, then these men who understood the Old Testament Scriptures had some more questions that started in verse 21. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. If he wasn't the Christ, maybe he was Elijah. Think of why they would ask if he was Elijah. Malachi chapter 4 verse 5 teaches us, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. Malachi made it known that prior to the coming of Christ, Elijah would come. And one of the things that most of the Jews failed to understand is that the Messiah would come twice coming the first time as the Savior, dying on the cross, coming the second time as the judge of men. And it certainly is a possibility that Elijah could be one of the two witnesses of Revelation 11. Here in our text, John the Baptist testified that he was not Elijah. But turn over to Matthew 17. Here is something that we also need to keep in mind. We've gone to Matthew 17 quite a bit lately because this is the transfiguration of Christ. And up on the mountain, Peter, James, and John saw Jesus talking with Moses and Elijah. Skip down to verse 10 in Matthew 17. And his disciples asked him, saying, Why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? The disciples were a little confused about the timing of things. Jesus answered and said to them, Indeed, Elijah is coming first and will restore all things. But I say to you that Elijah has come already, and they did not know him, but did to him whatever they wished. Likewise, the Son of Man is also about to suffer at their hands. John the Baptist was rejected, and so would Christ be rejected. Verse 13 records, Then disciples understood that he spoke to them of 
John the Baptist. John was not Elijah, but John came in the spirit and power of Elijah. In Luke 1.17, John's father, Zacharias, was told that John would go before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah. John's ministry was like the ministry of Elijah. Back now in the Gospel of John, you have to give the Jews this. They knew the Old Testament scriptures. If he wasn't the Christ, if he wasn't Elijah, then he had to be the prophet foretold in Deuteronomy 18. They remembered that Moses had prophesied that one day God would raise up a prophet just like him. Listen to Deuteronomy 18, verse 15. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your midst, from your brethren, him you shall hear. And then listen to verse 18 of that same chapter. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brethren and will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I command him. What these Jewish leaders did not understand was that this prophecy was another reference to Christ. Notice the short answer from John. No. His answers got shorter and shorter with each guess. I am not the Christ. I am not No. John was a prophet, but he was not the prophet predicted in Deuteronomy 18 because that was a prediction of Christ. Take a look at what the Jews said next, starting in verse 22 of John. Then they said to him, Who are you that we may give an answer to those who sent us? What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord as the prophet Isaiah said. Verse 22 is awesome. Who are you? They had to answer to the Pharisees and the priests. They couldn't go back without an answer. John takes them back to Isaiah 40, verse 3. John told them that he was only a voice. He was the herald of the Lord. Jesus was the word and John was the voice. Back in the days of Isaiah, there were few roads. And when a king traveled, roads were built so the royal chariot didn't have to go over rough terrain. Isaiah was testifying that before God manifested his glory, a voice would be heard calling the people of Israel to make straight the way by which God himself would come. Note with me that the text from Isaiah states, make straight the way of the Lord. Isaiah testifies literally, make straight the way of Yahweh. John was preparing the way for Yahweh. Verse 26 in John, we're going to get to in just a minute. But it could very well be that verse 26 actually means that Jesus himself was standing in the crowd watching his faithful ambassador answer these questions from the Jews. And we know according to verse 29 that at the very least Jesus was there the next day. He was present. He was among the people. No wonder John's answers got shorter and shorter. These next few verses move pretty quick. Let's read them again starting with verse 24. Now those who were sent were from the Pharisees. And they asked him, saying, Why then do you baptize if you are not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, saying, I baptize with water, but there stands one among you whom you do not know. It is he who, coming after me, is preferred before me, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to loose. These things were done in Bethabara, beyond the Jordan, where John was baptizing seems to be a little bit of tension going on in this part of the passage, a little bit of a clash. Why are you baptizing, John? Remember, these were the Jews who were concerned with all the Jewish ceremonies, their traditions. If you are not the Messiah, if you are not Elijah or the prophet, what right, John, do you have to start introducing baptism, which was not ordered by the law? 
Who do you think you are, John? The men of religion never like their authority challenged. Now, there is some evidence that suggests that the Jews did baptize proselytes or Gentile converts to the Jewish faith. But proselytes baptized themselves and were Gentiles seeking admission to be a part of Israel. John's baptism was administered by him to the Jews. Pharisees didn't take kindly to this. In their line of thinking, they couldn't understand why any Jew would need to go through such a baptism treating themselves like a Gentile. His baptism was to prepare the hearts of the people for the coming ministry of the Messiah. But the Pharisees were pretty disgusted at any suggestion that they needed to repent. John did not spend a lot of time answering their questions because John himself was not accountable to the Pharisees. He received his authority from the Lord himself. His authority came from the one that was standing in their midst, the one that they could not see because they were spiritually blind. The Messiah of Israel, the Christ, the hope of every faithful Hebrew heart was standing in the midst of them, and they did not know it. Think of this statement. It is he who coming after me is preferred before me, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to loose. The task of loosening the sandal strap was considered by the Jews to be a lowly job. It was something that was only fitting for a slave. John The greatest of all the prophets humbled himself in the presence of his Lord, and he considered himself unworthy of even loosening the sandals of his Savior. At this point, the Apostle John adds a little footnote out of his own knowledge about the event. He says that these things took place at Bethabara beyond the Jordan, where John was baptizing. This is Bethany beyond the Jordan. Most teachers think that this was the shallow crossing in the Jordan River, just to the north of the Dead Sea, not too far from Jericho. Or another view is that this might have taken place about 10 miles south of the Sea of Galilee. Louisa Stead was born about 1850 in Dover, England. She came to the United States in 1871, and she lived for a time in Cincinnati, Ohio. In 1875, she married Mr. Stead, and they had one child, Lily. When Lily was four years old, the family decided to enjoy a day on a sunny beach at Long Island Sound, New York. While eating their picnic lunch, they heard the cries of help and spotted a drowning boy in the water. Mr. Stead charged into the water. As it often happens, the struggling boy pulled Mr. Stead under the water with him, and they both drowned before the terrified eyes of his wife and daughter. It was during the days that followed as she wrestled with the grief and sorrow of losing her husband that she wrote to him, "'Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus." "'Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus, just to take him at his word, just to rest upon his promise, just to know, thus saith the Lord. Yes, tis sweet to trust in Jesus, just from sin and self to cease, just from Jesus simply taking life and rest and joy." and peace. Jesus, Jesus, how I trust him, how I've proved him over and over. Jesus, Jesus, precious Jesus, oh, for grace to trust him more. I'm so glad I learned to trust him, precious Jesus, Savior, friend, and I know that thou art with me, will be with me to the end. You read the words of this great hymn, and it would cause you to think that these words were written by someone who had everything going their way but they were written in despair, in a time of grief and mourning. Why? Because the comfort comes 
in the simplicity of taking God at his word and the confidence in the character of God, knowing that thus saith the Lord means his decree for his glory and our good. I think of this when I think of the ministry of John the Baptist. He stepped onto the scene, not even knowing who the Christ was, but John trusted. John trusted the one who had given him the task of preparing the way for the Messiah. John lived his entire life for this short time of ministry. It meant that John would be under constant attack from the religious establishment of the day. It meant that John would eventually lose his life for standing up for the truth. But through it all, the one thing that we see in his life is that John was faithful to the Lord. John trusted the Lord. It has been said that the believer in Christ must learn to have such a strong trust in God during the good times so that when the dark moments of life come, that trust in Christ will remain with you and see you through. Trust in Jesus, take him at his word, and rest upon his promise. Return to the Word Ministries is committed to teaching the full counsel of God's Word and the gospel of Jesus Christ. For more about our ministry, please visit returntotheword.com. Return to the Word is a faith ministry. This means we freely distribute the teaching of the Word of God over the air and online. We do this without charge. If you feel led to support the ministry with a donation to help cover these costs, you may do so on our website, returntotheword.com, or by mailing a donation to Return to the Word, P.O. Box 879-259, Wasilla, Alaska, 99687. Thanks for listening, and we pray that the Word of God will be a lamp unto your feet and a light unto your path. Join us next time for another edition of Return to the Word.